I was so much perfectionist in the, with the wrong things. And it was a huge message to me, like, why do I care whether the, whether the drawers pushed in properly? What I need to care about is being there for my children in the right way and not worrying about whether the house looks perfect. Welcome to the Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast, where we focus on health and wellness and overcoming all types of addictions. You're in the right place if you're a mom, dad, sibling, or caregiver who has a loved one who is or was struggling with an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. In a time where everything seems heavy, I'm here to bring you a very real yet lighthearted take on what the heck we're all supposed to do with our lives while we care for our loved ones who are struggling. One thing holds true throughout it all. You can't juggle the chaos without smiling, at least a little bit. Well, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am your host, Moira Gorski, and so thrilled you are back listening today. This has been a really, um, again, it's been a great year as we're coming up to almost a year of uh, sharing on this podcast. And you know, because you hear me say it all the time, that one of my favorite days is when I get to share some of my friends with you. And albeit Laura and Tom are not yet my friends, uh, we just met today on Zoom, I just am thrilled that... I have been connected with them, and I'm thrilled that I'm able to share their story with you. They are a mother and son team, if you will, that um, both have a recovery story from addictions and just have a wonderful, wonderful story of redemption and um, it coming out really good in the end uh, throughout the struggle. So today, again, Laura, Laura Cook-Bolt and Tom Bolt are joining me today as a mother and son, and uh, the book that they have written to chronicle their interesting life um, of addiction and redemption is called Unraveled. So uh, that'll all be in the show notes so that you'll be able to connect with them. But thank you for joining me today, Laura and Tom. Thank you. And I know in the book, you're called Tommy. And I have a son who's Tommy, whose official name is Thomas. So I guess I should have asked before we started, would you like to be Tommy? Or are you okay with Tom? (laughs) Tom is good. Tom is good. I think we went Tommy because my, my father's name is Tom. So we didn't want to get any, any, anything mixed up. Okay. Yeah. I know that my 17 year old, he still wants to be Tommy and we'll let him be Tommy until he wants to be perhaps something else. So, (laughs) so anyway, so again, thanks for uh, joining me today. Again, I've read part, I've read parts of your book. Uh, Thank you for sending it to me so that I could preview it. Um, It's quite a story and there's a lot in there. And as I say to people in the beginning, let's talk about your story and how you got to today. And not all the gory details, and there's a lot of that in the book, um, if you will, just a lot of those details. But just, I think I'd like to, I love the fact that, and I was telling Tom this before we came on, I love the fact that we have both perspectives today. We have a parent and we have a child. And I feel like the, you know, it's, it's a different view that we have in each one of those positions. And I sit I've been in both of those positions. I've had an eating disorder in college. And um, so I was the person struggling. And then now I'm a mother who is watching their child. So it's just, it's different and it's, they're different perspectives. So I'd love for you to each kind of, you know, start out by telling the story kind of about how things started or um, kind of how it, how that story began for your struggles and addictions. And then we'll talk about some other things. So how about, um, how about Tom? We we start with you. Sounds good. Thanks for having us on. Mm-hmm. You know, to kind of keep it brief, 
for me, I mean, alcoholism runs in my family. So, so that is there for me. It probably started, uh, in middle school to high school when I found a group of people that, um, liked to smoke and, and hang out. And I was, uh, introduced to marijuana and I liked the way that that made me feel basically, you know, as things progressed, I progressed to, you know, lots of alcohol, lots of partying, cocaine, you know, uh, pain pills, Xanax, anything like that. And I liked the way it made me feel because it brought me out of fear and uh, feeling alone or not good enough, whatever, whatever it was that I was feeling, it made me feel uh, like I fit in, like everything was okay. Obviously, it, it progressed to the point where I actually needed that stuff in order to not feel sick because I, I became physically dependent, you know, and I had a lot of bad things that happened. I, I crashed cars, totaled a motorcycle. This stuff's in, in, in the book if you want to get more <laughs> specifics on it. And it ended up with me just, you know, it was very hard during those times. So I'm not going to make it, it, it kind of sounds like it was easy for me to get sober, but all of this stuff leading up to the, to the point where I decided it was time to change, make a change, very difficult and sad. Well, and, and, and I, if I can just interject a little bit, like when you sure. read the story, I mean, you read it and that's kind of, you're like, I'm thinking, wow, like, why would he keep, I mean, he's wrecked some cars, he's wrecked some relationships, he almost lost a friend, you know, I mean, like, you know, family issues, like, we always wonder, like, why don't they stop when all of that, it's pretty bad. Why wouldn't you say, okay, you know what, I think I'm done. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, I tried to do that a couple of times. I, there was a time when I was sitting in the doctor's office having pins removed from my my hand from, I had them removed a couple times by the same doctor because one time was for a motorcycle accident. The next was for a fight. And after the second time, he's like, you know, maybe you shouldn't, you know, drink as much, you know? And, um, I tried to stop a couple of times on my own and it just, it didn't work out. I mean, Laura would help me detox on the couch and it would just be just so brutal. And I'd go right back because I just didn't like the way I felt living. And, um, so I finally got to the point where I just couldn't take it anymore. I was ready to die. You know, I didn't care if I died. I didn't necessarily want kill myself, but I also didn't care if something happened and I were to die. So I was kind of at that point And I, I said, well, the only thing I really haven't tried besides, you know, doctors, therapists, trying to manage my, my own, uh, use to try and get sober completely through the help of a, a treatment program or rehab. And so I knew my mom was sober at the time and I reached out for help and I received help and I went away for like 120 days and slowly but surely I started to feel better every day. And today I just try to do the same things every day that they taught me to do when I first got sober. I see a lot of people that don't do that and they end up going back to using again. So, and, and I don't want to go back there. So that's basically what I do today. And that's, mm. that's, that's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a small little nutshell, but yeah. Um, and I think, again, 
I think when I've just heard this from other people, they don't understand like when a child, like we live in a, I mean, I didn't know your, your um, situation when you grew up, but you know, I think you had a pretty good upbringing and you know, all of that. And like people say, well, why, like what happened and why are they, why are they afraid or why do they feel like they don't fit in? Like life is good, but I don't know, some, some things happen. And again, there, I think there's some genetics and like you talked about, there's alcoholism in your family and things like that. But again, I think it's unfortunate, but it's, it happens that you don't feel so good. And then you find something to help you feel better to get through the day. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of, um, how it goes, you, you know, you see a lot of this stuff in, you know, when I was growing up, I thought an alcoholic or an addict alcoholic was a brown paper bag living under a freeway and addict was somebody living in a crack house that, you know, had track marks all up and down their body. That was my idea of it. So I, I, I didn't know that that was only one type, you know, there are multiple different types. You see it in Hollywood all the time, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think, you know, like you said, you, you, you take something that it gives you a little bit of relief and you continue to do it. I think there's a saying it said, uh, it's like, uh, you can turn it, you can turn a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't turn a pickle back into a cucumber, something like that. So if you're, you know, once you become an alcoholic or an addict, that's you're an alcoholic or addict. You don't Mm. go back. You just, Mm. you just have to learn to live sober. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks for that, and um, we'll hear from more from you. But so, Laura, let's um, let's have you kind of share your story, and um, we'll 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 go to you now. Sounds great. First of all, thank you for having us both on your podcast. It's such a great opportunity to share our story and meet you. Welcome. Uh, okay, I I also, I mean, I am the family member in Tommy's life that is an alcoholic. And I grew up in a, with a mother as an active alcoholic who eventually got into recovery when she was in her 60s. And it was amazing. It was just amazing. So as a young child, I always, as soon as I could recognize that my mother had a drinking problem, which is kind of how I classified it, I made it my mission, I thought, not to be that mother, not to be that person. I, I was an athlete in school. I was a very average student, I, which was fine with me. I had great friendships. I still found my way into drinking at a young age and partying quite a bit in high school. When I got into college, I experimented with a variety of drugs. And in a big way, I did a lot of cocaine. By the time I graduated from college, and I did in, um, in four years, which is amazing, I went to graduate school in New York and I still somehow got through graduate school, but experimented with some pretty dangerous drugs. And by the time I got out of graduate school, I I moved back to St. Louis and was in a relationship that was very motivated by drugs. And I realized that 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 was just not part of what I wanted to be. So to pull the wool over my eyes, I stopped doing drugs and still kept drinking. Quitting the drugs didn't put me into any kind of a, a detox situation. I'm kind of surprised, but uh, it did not. So I, I drank in, in a way that I thought was somewhat controlled, uh, married my husband, and of course, tied one on every once in a while. But the, 
I, I don't know how it works uh, physiologically or emotionally or any other way with addiction, how your, your amounts that you drink and use can fluctuate to a certain degree. I felt like I could sort of hide it from myself for a great period of time. And as we, we come to learn that addiction is really progressive, uh, can't be fatal disease, whether you're drinking or not. By the time I have four sons, by the time Tommy being the oldest, by the time I had my fourth son, when he was about two, I it was just a much more routine for me to pour a glass of wine, have a couple of bottles opened and a couple areas of the house. I didn't hide it, but I thought I was hiding it to some degree just by grabbing a glass here and grabbing a glass there. And and really the amount that I was drinking increased, the amount that it affected me, it affected me increased. And uh, gratefully, my husband came from a family uh, where his father uh, was a physician and started a rehab 30-day treatment program in St. Louis to help one of his friends. And it was based on the 12 steps. And he grew up with the language and the compassion. And so he did confront me with it. And he's the only one that had. And I think at that point, when he did, I, I knew he was right. I had been found out. And of course, after that, I had to do some more field work. So by that, I mean, I went out and I had to drink more to prove that I can control it. And my, my life really started to become unmanageable. I mean, I, I geared all my carpooling with my children around my drinking. I found myself passing out uh, a, a few times and, and spilling wine on myself. Uh, and this all so sounds pretty benign and kind of lame, but, you know, addiction is addiction. And there are reasons why we drink. Yes, you can say it's genetic. I can't tell you what percentage is responsible for my drinking. I imagine I had a whole hell of a lot to do with it. Yeah, there's the trauma of growing up in an alcoholic family. There is uh, the amount of partying that I like to keep up with. There's certain loneliness, despite the fact that I felt like I had a lot of friendships and I was productive and I was working and I was really doing a great job of hiding all of it. Uh, one of the things that that really got to me as an adult with children and, and being married is that I had to present that you look perfect from the outside thing. And uh, that's not at all what I was feeling. So it's almost like being a hamster at a wheel. You just keep spinning your wheels to try to make everything just so. The house looks perfect. The kids look perfect. And, and the insides don't match the outsides whatsoever. The, what brought me to my knees, and I believe it was for me an epiphany, and for those listeners out there that um, don't believe in that, I, I don't want to turn anyone off by the fact that faith indeed is what uh, brought me to my knees or introduced me to faith being brought to my knees, uh, because that's what worked for me. And I realized uh, after I had a, a nearly fatal car accident that I really could have killed somebody. I could have killed myself. And at that point, I was ready to listen. I was, I could hear my higher power, which is God speaking to me and saying, if you don't do this now, when are you going to do it? What's it going to take? Because the car accident was pretty bad. I mean, I ended up in the emergency room and, and the physician at the time tried to talk me out of believing I was an alcoholic because I didn't look like one. My blood work was fine. However, I had a pretty bad head injury and uh, I was a wreck. And that was a little over 12 years ago. I haven't had a drink since. Now, I'm making it sound awfully easy. And, and by that, I'm sorry if I sound too cliche or too uh, running through it too quickly, but it, it was not at all easy. 
it took a hell of a lot of mistakes and a lot of near-death experiences for me to realize that I was basically uh, ruining my life. And my life as a, as a wife, a mother, a friend, a person, a relative, uh, in all facets. And the, the one thing I can say is that after that accident, and I realized how serious it was, uh, I was relieved. Number one, I was found out. Um, and, and to back up a little bit, I, I saw therapists a lot growing up and, and one of the therapists, well, I should say more than one, probably a couple of them were on to me in my later years, they would touch on it. For example, I had one that would say, come on, let's just say the serenity prayer together. And I thought, God, this guy's getting way too close to, to, to knowing that, uh, I drink too much. So I'm just going to stop seeing him and go to a, a, a therapy shop. And, and so you do all these crazy, crazy things to hide something that you really don't want, but don't know how to stop. It's interesting that you said that because now I'm, my daughter's six years into her struggle and it still continues today. But I remember when I first confronted her about it, when I saw her, us out to eat and her playing with her food and, you know, wondered like, wait a minute, is that, and I know she had lost weight. And so it was seemingly all too familiar and I confronted her on, and it was almost like she was relieved because she had had this secret for a while. And like, she wasn't open enough to share it with me, even though she was so struggling, but I found her out and it was like, we had a nice conversation and she was able to open up. So she was glad that at that point that she was found out because then she could maybe get some, some help. So, you know, having my accident at 48 and I'm 61 now seemed to be the epiphany I had and the vulnerability that I had at that time, which I was really happy about, and the willingness to say, I'm in trouble. I can't do this. I need to get involved in a 12-step program. I know friends in the program. I I really need to take care of myself was really, uh, I was ready for it. Therefore, it, it was that relief to me. But what, what occurred in the years up to that point was I couldn't look in the mirror. I was scared. I was lonely. I was um, disappointed. I felt shame. I felt uh, anxiety. I mean, all these things. And, and within days of my not drinking anymore and not hiding it anymore, I, it lifted the anxiety. It lifted, you know, the shame is something we get to work with over time. But the, the not beating ourselves up anymore, you know, and then, of course, at that time I was sober when when we kind of realized that Tommy was getting involved in his uh, drugs and, and alcohol. And, and Tommy and I are very similar people. So uh, to say that uh, there are multitude of reasons why we become addicts, and I think we could pick every single one of them and say it applies to both of us. Because I, I saw, and I wondered if that, because I assumed that, yeah, you got sober, but then you started to watch your son struggle. And I noticed in, you know, part of the book, you know, there was a part that Tommy talked about, or Tom talked about, um, again, that something was missing. You know, there was just something missing in his life. And at the same time, the next couple of sentences, you, Laura, said, I noticed that something was off with him and that he was unmotivated and he was private. So probably familiar um, behaviors that you knew about. And so I just wonder perhaps like what that feeling was like, Laura, because I know that when I, again, saw my past seemingly repeating itself in front of my face 
it was a pain like I've never felt before. And I couldn't imagine. And I, you know, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I, I take responsibility for a number of parenting mistakes that I made. But one of the things I feel is that our children's issues are not necessarily due to a parenting malfunction. I think that had I been sober and understood the disease a little bit better or myself a little bit better, I would have been a far better parent at the time. But, but knowing that Tommy was headed down the same path, I understood it, but it broke my heart. Uh, it, and it's not about me, but I did feel a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and I felt like I was responsible and what could I do to make it better? And, and so much of what I did was so, such codependent behavior, even as a sober person. And, and you want to fix it and you want to come up with the answers for your child. And, and unfortunately, sometimes it's the um, school of, of hard knocks. I mean, you know, he has to want to do it. And my picking up the pieces isn't going to help that. So I did have to seek some counseling to help me take care of myself, but at the same time, be a strong parent for Tommy. And also, really, I had to to maintain my sobriety, too, which um, actually I didn't ever, wasn't ever tempted to engage in drinking again, because I knew that drinking doesn't make anything better. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. And smoking cigarettes doesn't make anything better. So it was, it was a scary time. Yeah. And I, I, I completely relate to everything you said, you know, it's the guilt and the shame and I'm responsible. There's a genetic component to eating disorders. So here's my daughter with this. Cause you had one, you know, the same thing with alcohol. And so, and being a, a recovering codependent and uh, know all about that. And, um, you know, so I'd love to hear your perspective, Tom, about just, again, your mom wanting to help so much and wanting to, you know, point you in the right direction or things like that. Like, I don't know, how did that make you feel perhaps, or just talk about that? Because, you know, that's all we want, right? Laura is for our Mm -hmm. kids to be better. And I've learned that I have to, just like you said, I have to take care of myself and, you know, put that hard boundary down and do that and just be a living example of this is how you take care of yourself and what they're going to do. They're going to do. So I'd love to hear your perspective, Tom, on kind of all of that. Sure. A little bit of that or whatever. Have we have time for it? Yeah, Yeah, sure. I think that I don't, you know, when I look back and remember that, that time period, I don't think, you know, Laura wasn't that, my mom wasn't that pushy with me. She never tried to push me really hard into any direction. We would have conversations here and there about uh, not working or working or school or uh, getting my life together a little bit or, but nothing was really pushed. I know sobriety wasn't really forced upon me. I'm glad that it wasn't because if it was, I probably, I don't know where I would be now. I definitely would have gotten angry. I know that there was one time when we had a discussion and and she said, if this continues, you will be going somewhere to get help. And we didn't have that discussion again, because the next time that we were supposed to maybe have that discussion again, I brought it up and said, I need help. So, you know, 
during that time, I mean, she says that she was uh, codependent and maybe should have done things a different way. But in my view, I'm glad that it went the way it did because I was able to come to this realization almost on my own. And, and when I talk to people that are newly sober or trying to get sober, I see a lot more success with people that are there because they came up with the idea versus people that go there um, because of court or because they were forced to, because it's just something that you just have to have your own experience hitting a bottom. Yeah. And it's hard though, when we, again, when we watch others around us struggle and wonder like, how much longer, right? How how many more times do you have to crash the car or lose a job or lose a friend? And again, it's a hard place to sit in, right? As that mom or dad or friend. Um, But I think that that, but I know that that's what I've heard from many. Like I finally had that epiphany. I finally decided that I was going to do it for me and for no one else. Yeah. I see, I, I see it all the time where I feel so lucky that I was able to hit my bottom as quickly as I did and on my own because I got sober at 21 and I'm 29 now. And I see a lot of people that are forced into it at 21 and then they go out, they go to treatment for six months, they get out, they drink once and their parents send them back in for six months and they go out and they get high or drink for like a week and then they go back in for six months. And it just, it's, it just makes this whole process so much longer. You know, and, and so for me, it was, you know, it's all about just hitting the, hitting the bottom, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, it's hard to watch that mm-hmm. hard, you know, because I, I get it. Right. Yeah. And again, I completely relate with Laura. She talks about, you know, parenting mistakes and all that. I mean, I got a whole book of them, but we don't, again, I've done a lot of work on getting past that guilt and I'm sure that you have too. And I believe that life, life is about kind of working through that and forgiving ourselves and, and things like that. Again, there's several things that I wrote, you know, marked in the book, but like one thing I, I had marked um, that I wanted to talk about was, I think this was when you were in treatment and getting sober, you know, just talking about not pushing and just allowing things. And maybe you talked to, I don't know if you can remember when you spoke about it, but it, it stuck, stuck out to me. And just that accepting that this is the way it's supposed to be. And it, I think it probably stuck out to me because I've been working this year on surrendering and just kind of letting like this, this is the way it's supposed to be. Even though like sitting in this area of like, oh my God, like how, like, I don't want it to be this way, but just trying to accept that this is the way it's supposed to be. And I think that that's, I don't know, there's just a lot of wisdom there. And do you remember when you, we spoke about that, Tom? Yeah, except, I mean, the acceptance part of it. I mean, I, I remember sitting in treatment and looking to another, uh, another gentleman that was there and saying, you know, I don't think that I can do this, you know, cause I went into treatment high as a kite, mm-hmm. uh, woke up the next day and was like, oh shit, what did I do? But yeah, it's just, he said, it gets better every day. And so from that point on, it did get better every day. And I kind of learned to just kind of take it easy and listen to what everybody else was saying to me because I had basically ran the show myself for 
however many years. It's time to listen to somebody else. So I was like, all right, this is what's supposed to be happening. You know, let's just listen to what these guys are saying. Maybe they're on to something. <laughs> and not trying to control everything. And like you said, run the show yourself. Exactly. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. It can be. Yeah. 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 And with Laura too, again, I want to talk about, um, you talked about faith and um, the God of your understanding and things like that. There's a few podcasts, a few friends that I've interviewed that they talked about how they realized that there was just emptiness inside of them. And they realized that the only thing that could fill that emptiness was the love of their father, of their heavenly father. And, um, and I know I was raised in the Baptist church and the Bible church and had a, was baptized and all that stuff. And I had a faith, but I remember, it always gets me, I remember being on, the, on my knees in the kitchen praying to the God that I knew to say, don't take my daughter and don't take my business. And don't, you know, it's just like, like all of a sudden, like, I don't know if that was an epiphany for me, but it was a place where my faith became so personal. And like, I started to listen to that voice in my head when I slowed down enough to pray in the morning or to meditate, or when I was taking the dogs for a walk and I'd hear somebody's name. And I was like, maybe I should call them. You know, like, I don't know why I should call Joan, but I called Joan and how are you doing, Joan? And I haven't talked to you in a while, Joan. And and before you know it, I realized why I was supposed to call Joan, you know, and it started to remind me of, you know, a power greater than me that could help me. So I know this isn't about me, but that's my faith. Like my no. faith really changed at that point. And it's what I continue to grab onto when t- times are tough. And um, I just want to talk about that because that's such a, in a world where everybody wants to control everything and like have this great life and have it look perfect. Like we can't, like, it's not our life to plan, right? There's somebody else that's in control. And if the better we can understand that and allow that, then it's a better place to be. So so I wiped my tears. Why don't you start oh, okay. So I, I grew up in a family um, where, um, you know, a Christian family, and I have a mixture of uh, religions in my family. My mother eventually became more agnostic, but my stepfather was very dedicated towards making sure I got to Sunday school and all this sort of thing. But then I never got confirmed. So I got confirmed in high school with another friend. And I knew that faith was what I should have, but I didn't know what that was. Like for me, up until I was on my knees after my car accident at 48, I really thought that praying was asking uh, for, a, you know, I, I, I want this and I want that and I want that. And I was trying to like tell God, this is what you need to do. And then I would be really disappointed when that didn't happen. Because I personally, I, I didn't, I didn't know how to pray. And, and eventually I learned for me, the best thing um, in the epiphany at 48 was surrender. That is something that I try to remember for almost every, in every aspect of my life. I mean, you know, I had to surrender in order to understand that I needed help. I had to surrender to know that somebody was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself Clearly, that was my higher power, which is God. And the the best that I could muster 
during the course of the time after my accident was thanking him. Number one, thanking him for, for the realization that I need help, that I'm alive, that I didn't kill anybody. And I started to pray out of gratitude as opposed to, to asking. And somehow that helped me accept things that I couldn't control a little bit better. Knowing that a life of gratitude is really what I needed and needed to focus on in order to pull myself up. And I had a lot to be grateful for. Uh, with Tommy, I, I you know, I, I just prayed. I prayed like hell. Okay, so how did this all start? Yes, well, I'm a Catholic convert. I went to mass all the time and I still wasn't feeling it. This is before I quit drinking. I still wasn't feeling it. I still sort of prayed a little selfishly or I, I just, nothing was really clicking and nothing felt natural about my praying. I didn't know how to meditate. I didn't know how to do any of that, but my program, my 12 step program taught me and, and they're not taking a religious stance. It's more about surrender and acceptance and gratitude and things like that. And, uh, you know, shit, I thought God didn't like me at all. And he was disappointed in me because I made so many damn mistakes. And he, he just kind of said, oh, well, you're kind of a lost cause. You're on your own. But in reality, in retrospect, I just wasn't listening. And, and now there are a number of things that happen. Uh, people I meet, relationships I have, places that I'm in where uh, I have an opportunity to talk about addiction with somebody who I don't even know that well. And it all seems like God, a uh, God working in my path and in guiding me. And I believe that to be true. And, and that's what I've come to count on. It is, it's so interesting to me when you get to this point in recovery and if you don't practice things on a regular basis, then you begin to feel a little restless, discontent, irritable, and all those sort of things. And if we know that that's what makes us feel better and makes us feel whole, then why don't we do it all the time? Well, I have an addicted mind and I have to make myself do these things. I'm not saying that I want to have a drink, but if I don't maintain my um, spiritual connection, then I'm really pretty, pretty sick. And uh, left to my own devices, I think I I haven't wanted to drink, but I don't want to get to that point where I feel like that's an option. Yeah. Well, like Tom said, you know, you know, you follow the things that they taught you in program from day one. Right. You still follow those. Those that aren't following all of them, again, things start to be a little loose, and like you said, that that perhaps using or drinking again becomes, you know, an option. That's in right. The first and foremost of your mind, as opposed to way in the back, you know. That's right. And we want to be able to think with the frontal cortex. We want to have the reasoning and and uh, abilities and so forth that addiction takes away because you're just dealing with your primal brain, you know, which is survival. And back then it's drink, eat, sleep, have sex, whatever it might be. Nothing in there does it say acceptance, reasoning, faith, mm-hmm. nothing. So, um, you know, the, the sobriety part is what allowed me to have faith. But the reason I'm sober is because I feel that I had an epiphany. I don't know that everybody that's sober feels that they've had an epiphany, but I do feel that everybody that feels healthy in their sobriety has some sort of spiritual connection that's personal to them. 
And I don't want that to sound daunting to people because I believe that that comes in time. It hopefully at no loss of life for them or for somebody they happen to be around. That's what we worry about. Everybody's bottom is the same. We're all spiritually destitute. Some people die. Some people live through it and are able to get sober. And some people try and try and try again. It's uh, it's a baffling, powerful, cunning, and sometimes fatal demise. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And um, we've talked about this on many of the episodes that you find um, a tool, you know, you find tools to put in your tool belt. And if it's faith, if it's your friends, if it's meditating, EFT, whatever it is, you can listen to all my episodes. There's lots of tools that people have found to put in their tool belts. And that's the, everybody says that's what they, you know, it's important to find things in your tool belt so that when you need them, you can pull them out and use them to keep you on the straight, you know, the straight path. I'd love to talk about, you know, before we get to the end of our time together is just like about your relationship as a mom and son and like, you know, was it bad? Was it tumultuous? Was it fine? You know, was there, did there need to be healing? Did there need to be reconciliation? You know? I mean, I thought, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I enjoyed the process a lot. I, I think there were a lot of things that, you know, my mom didn't know about me and there were a lot of things that I didn't know about her. And uh, we had to go back and relive all of this together. So in a way, it was therapeutic. Definitely, it brought us closer together. You know, I, I got more of an understanding of her and who she is as a person. You know, it's just not normal stuff that you really talk about on, on you know, day to day with your parents. You know, when we, we got pretty deep into spirituality and uh, talking about all of this stuff together. So I, I, I see it as a huge positive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's uh, it's very amazing to me. When Tommy was born, I held him and I, it was an immediate love story. I have never loved anything as much as I loved this wonderful first baby of mine. And I wanted to be the best mother I could be. And I wanted so much for Tommy. And a lot of my character defects and drinking interfered with being the best mother I could be. I don't feel like I was a bad mother. I just feel like there were certain things that I probably could have handled a little bit better. And eventually with my sobriety, I feel like that allowed me to be really the person that God had intended me to be. Uh, and, and the only way I could be that is by going through what I went through. So I don't, I don't regret the past. I think I was there for Tommy in multitude of ways in the right capacity as a child when he was uh, being bullied at school and a number of painful experiences that children happened to go through. I certainly didn't turn a blind eye to any of it, but I think our relationship is, is profoundly uh, healthy. And I, I admire Tommy's program. He's, he's very serious about it. He's very sensible. Uh, He's, he's not a dramatic guy, which I find, um, extremely valuable. I just think that, uh, you know, we have a great friendship. He is my son. And uh, writing the book together was, was amazing. I mean, it did bring up things like I, I, yes, there were times when I was yelled at him and, and I got pissed off at certain things and things that, and, and he would get pissed off at me and we would butt heads because we were so, so much alike. One of the funniest stories is I was, um, 
maybe I guess I had pissed him off on on numerous levels and I was a perfectionist in the house and I came home and he had moved the furniture around and he had like un- taken out drawers out of out of things and moved all the little artifacts around the house to different places and as they say in the program you know how do you piss off an alcoholic well you rearrange the furniture well that's because they're drunk and they've memorized the path and they'll trip over it but for me it was more like I was so much perfectionist in the, with the wrong things. And it was a huge message to me, like, why do I care whether the whether the drawers pushed in properly? What I need to care about is being there for my children in the right way and not worrying about whether the house looks perfect. I mean, little things like that, uh, that we would, he remembers well, it. But I think, I think we need to pause and have people rewind that and listen to that again, because that's pretty profound. I mean, I mean, I went through a program that like a self-development program that we talked about, like if we were super like neat or if we're super messy, like we would mess up the super neat place and try to live with that for a couple of days and vice versa. And like it, but it wasn't really about the messy, messing up the, the clean place. It was like, again, what that brought up and like what you just said was like, does it really matter if your kitchen's clean? Like it should matter that you're taking care of your son or you're paying attention to your son who's, or your daughter who's crying when he comes home from school or whatever the case is, you know, like where are your priorities? So that's, that's right. It was really messed up. And so he was a great mirror Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't, he was such, he had so much wisdom as a kid. Well, and I, and I love the fact that, I mean, there is a wonderful happy ending that you are, again, you're he's your son, but he's a great friend of yours and your relationship is deep. And, um, I have four children myself and, um, you know, three boys other than my daughter and, you know, the oldest one is 25 and then 23. And so I know that there's, it's a different relationship that you have regardless of your past when you get into that young adulthood. And I love it with my boys, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just in the 17 year old, it's starting to meld into the, you know, go into that, that he's getting to be a, a grown up or whatever. So it's a different relationship. And I love that, you know, and it takes a little bit of work to, again, allow that person to be their young adultness, if you will. And, but you still to be the mom of concern and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it makes, it just warms my heart to know that you have gotten through that and you're still, again, together and and friends and and all of that and respectful because um, honestly, I just want my daughter back, you know, and she's still in the Mm -hmm. midst of, and perhaps you thought that when Tommy continued to struggle, I just want my daughter to be out of that pain so that she can be my daughter again. That's right. And it becomes less of how does it look? That importance goes by the wayside where your, your heart just yearns for that, your child to experience life in a, in a healthy way. So they're happier. So they're more productive. And it's so much deeper than that because there's so much darkness and anxiety and drug abuse and things that, that cause us to act in a way that, that we really don't want to act, but we don't know how to deal with it in any other way, whether it's, you know, addiction, self-mutilation, uh, not eating. I mean, it's, to me, it seems like it's so much the same, um, I will say for, for alcoholics and drug addicts, however, though, we don't need to have a glass of wine to survive. And, you know, as a matter of fact, having a glass of wine would be the beginning of the end for me. Whereas people that struggle with eating, 
uh, they have to eat to survive because I mean, I thought I thought so it was important. hilarious. But but in the life of an alcoholic and addict, the, the nourishment comes. We need to take care of our eating and our and our perhaps our prayer life and spiritual life and and physical health and all those sort of things. I mean, there are a lot of components that play into taking care of ourselves, and um, we don't do anything perfectly. And nobody ever said we had to, but um, you know, there's a lot to be learned, and it's it's a good road. It's, uh, it's, I highly recommend it. I, I, I highly recommend it because it sure beats the hell out of the alternative, which is death for, for me, it would have been, I can't. And, and thank God Tommy's here to talk about it because I have a lot of friends who have lost children. He has friends that have died and passed away and it's, and some people do, and some people don't. And we pray for the ones that are active so that they don't. And it's, I mean, I talk to my daughter about it and I talk with others about it that, you know, when you have an addiction or an, an, an eating disorder, or I just, you know, that's the life that I live in with eating disorders, but so it, again, it's so similar to any other addiction. Mm-hmm. Like when the eating disorder wins or the addiction wins, you die. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, when there's complaints and this is happening, it's like, yeah, but that's exactly what the addiction wants to happen. So. It does. And the addiction is a powerful thing. People call it the beast. I call it the devil. I, I believe that it's it's so non-faith-filled um, that it can be nothing else but the devil. And uh, faith is more powerful than the devil. And that's a completely different conversation. But I just think the evilness of this demise is unquestionable and undeniable. Well, and I think as we wrap up today, and I asked you just a couple uh, finishing questions, I mean, that was what I told you earlier that I read today, and it's exactly what I needed to hear because, and see, to just have somebody else understand that, because that's exactly what I thought a couple of days ago, like this affliction that my daughter has is not of her, and it's not of God, because the God that I believe in is a God of good and not evil, mm-hmm. and that's so, right. again, it's still hard to to come up and have that faith every day. But um, I know that that's what gets me through. And I hope that people can hear that that's something that can help them get through too. I know there's much more to, you know, conversations to have, but I think as, you know, we wrap this up, I'd love to hear from you, Tommy, and also Laura, just a couple of words that you'd like to leave. You know, you've shared a lot of information today, which has been great. And a couple, just a couple of words you want to, that you didn't say, or that you just want to make sure that people here as we finish up today? So I might um, suggest, and then people might question this, but I, I feel like if you can get to a point where you're you're okay with being just a little bit vulnerable, um, reaching out and asking for help. And, and that's kind of a funny thing because if we could all reach out for help, we would, right? But I do think there are moments in time um, that and I did talk to other alcoholics and I did reach out in a way, like I'd say, how did you know you were alcoholic? And I did it in an inchworm fashion. That's okay. I mean, we all know people perhaps that are in the clergy or we have a friend we trust or a relative we trust where I think it's really important if you're afraid to share that fear, because there's nothing shameful about um, having the courage to um, ask for help. It's, um, it's really, really important and uh, not to worry about what anybody else thinks. It's more important to, to get help for yourself. And there is help out there. And in the middle of all this COVID, there's still help out there. Mm-hmm. We have Zoom meetings. We have people that we can connect with 
and email and, and get help. And it's there and it's real. And I hope that it, in some way, somebody listening will feel okay saying, okay, yeah, I guess that's right. Maybe I can ask somebody, how do I do this? How do I go to somebody for help? You just put it out there. Yeah, good. Thank you. And Tommy. Yeah, I, I you know, Laura basically nailed it. But I, I would say, you know, if you're out there and, and you feel like, there's no point to living anymore and, and you're suicidal or you think nobody understands you. I can tell you firsthand that people do understand and people have been there and there is a way out of that, even though there doesn't seem like it. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. what I would add, yeah. add and, to, to what um, Laura was saying. Yeah. But thank yeah. you again. I've um, the books unraveled again. I've read parts of it and, and continue to um, read it. It's a good one, a good one to pick up because it shines light on what I'm trying to do in this podcast is just shine light on that. There is hope in amongst the struggle and, um, and that we don't have to be ashamed of it. And perhaps with a little bit of faith and a little bit of forgiveness and waking up every day, grateful that we can get through, you know, we can get through our struggles. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Agreed. So thank you so much again for, um, connecting with me and thank you for you know sharing today again there's there's a lot of value in this and i know there's a lot of people that um again needed to hear this including myself today so i appreciate that thanks for coming thanks for continuing on with this great noble work of um you know just helping those and sharing your story to help those that are continuing to struggle well thank you thank you so much really appreciate the opportunity thank you yeah, you are welcome and so again to my listeners thanks for coming back thanks for listening this was a good one for the books and um, again you'll see the the contact information in the show notes of how to find these two um, if you want to connect if you want to buy their book if you just want to connect with them and um, again thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time thanks for listening if you like this podcast, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Share it with others and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. I've got a tribe over on Facebook, so head over there and search for Juggling the Chaos of Recovery Podcast Tribe. And do you know somebody who has a story, a story to share, a story of recovery and hope? Please let me know as I'd love to feature them as a guest on one of these next upcoming podcasts. And perhaps you're looking for a community of like-minded, collaborative, and supportive people who cheer each other on as we strive to improve our lives. If that sounds like something you've been looking for, schedule some time with me. You'll find the links in the show notes. Let's talk, and let me help you find your way. And I'm here to tell you that you're worth it.